You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. So there's something that I see come up in our community a lot. A woman, maybe in her early 40s, will start experiencing symptoms. Often it's waking up at 2.30 in the morning, wide awake, maybe with feelings of impending doom or panic, night after night out of nowhere. Or maybe she suddenly can't remember one of her coworkers' names, despite seeing her every single day for seven years. She's just not herself. And because of shows like this one and all the media attention to menopause, she recognizes this could be a sign of perimenopause. So she goes to her doctor, and one of the first questions is, are you still getting regular periods? If she says yes, very often any notion of perimenopause is quickly swept out the door. And that's what happened with this week's guest, Nina Kozlov, founder of Women Living Better. And she has both personal and research experience in exactly this. In fact, she conducted an entire study on this topic that was published in the journal Menopause. And that study found that women in what is known as the late reproductive stage, when you still have a regular cycle, which may have nearly imperceptible changes to it, can experience symptoms very similar to what we associate with the menopause transition or even postmenopause. That's a problem because one, we as women ourselves aren't often exper- expecting symptoms to show up that early. Two, our doctors aren't either. They're not expecting symptoms to show up often until about 50. And three, we're not getting the care we need that could set us up for better well being and health in midlife. So I had Nina on the show to talk about her experience her research, and the organization she started to make things better. I encourage you to check out her research and give Women Living Better a follow. I will put a link to her studies, her website, and Instagram in the show notes to make that all super easy. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I think it's a really, really important one. Okay, before we get to it, as always, check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Feisty Menopause. Come on in and join our private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group where you can have active menopausal discussions with 30,000 women just like you. And keep your eyes peeled for our new course, Navigate Menopause, coming soon. I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Quickly before we get to it, thanks Prevenex for your longtime support and keeping our team healthy over the holidays and into the new year. Our staff swears by their Immune Health Plus product to keep colds, flus, wintertime sickness at bay. So thanks, Prevenex, for your long time and continued support. We really appreciate you. All right, enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, 
so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice-cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. Okay. Well, Nina, I am so glad to have this conversation with you. We met not that long ago at the, um, I, I want to call it the North American Menopause Society Conference, but it's not the Menopause Society annual meeting. You know, they're going to need, they're going to need a new, not a new name. They can't do that, but An we're acronym. so used to saying NAMS. I know. And there's no interesting, like just off the tongue acronym for right. the Menopause Society. Right. Well, TMS, it's just too close to PMS. and Right. It's just not, yeah, it's not working. Yeah. But anyway, we met there and I'm glad to have you. I'm glad to have you here. So uh, this is, I was really looking forward to this conversation because I think it's going to shine light on a lot of issues that bubble up in my communities that people just are so confused about and feel like they're alone about. So I'm very excited to have this conversation. But before we dive in, um, I want a little bit more on you because like how you got to women living better. So I read an interview with you on healthywomen.gov and the lead paragraph says in her early forties, Nina Kozlov started experiencing symptoms of perimenopause, but she was still having regular menstrual periods when she couldn't get answers for health for her healthcare providers. She co-founded Women Living Better, an organization dedicated to improving women's understanding of the path to menopause through research and education. So, Nina, lots of women have these experiences, and then they just don't turn around and go, I'm going to start a not-for-profit site. You know, so like, can you fill me in on the more of the backstory there? Yes. Uh, so let me tease that apart. Um, you know, I've always had an interest in science and medicine, some of my... Um, 
medical, you know, uh, doctor friends say, just go to med school already. Um, so I've always liked research. Um, I worked in biotech for a while and um, kind of knew my way around finding the research and PubMed and so forth. And so when when sort of new things, experiences, aka symptoms <laughs> started popping up for me, um, I turned to the research and there was very, very little um, about anything happening while periods were still regular, but there was a very little. And um, over the course of uh, my own experience and then connecting with a, a good friend of mine, she was having a, a sort of a similar experience in terms of she was still getting regular periods, but but different set of symptoms. And I said to her, I, I think there's something here. And I just bugged her until she just said, okay, let's let's delve in and see what there is. And once we learned what we had learned on our own behalf, it felt, you know, inevitable to me not to share that with other women. It was, mm. there wasn't much and there needs to be a lot more, but there was enough that I didn't know that started honestly making me just feel better and validated and it normalized my experience. And that's really been the goal um, of women living better the whole time. Um, and um, I think there's just so much power in that, um, in, in sort of normalizing what we do know and understanding it better because as i said that was that's really was was <laughs> made me feel so so much better so it started with this the website um just putting up what we had learned and trying to figure out a way to do that that was digestible and um uh you know easy to read it's you know I get all kinds of feedback on on the site in terms of um, you know some of my friends say it's too much like reading you know a medical book uh, you know put up more pictures simplify more but it's not simple and um, so I really try to strike the balance between making it you know easy to understand but it's not you know it's not the very very quick um, so that's that's kind of how this you know out of personal experience and then just feeling compelled and and um, to share it with others. What were you experiencing? So my first thing was sleep, um, sleep disruption to be specific. And, you know, I remember it as waking up, you know, somewhere between like 208 and 213. Like every, it was like crazily precise. I mean, um, over and over and over. And then honestly, I was so getting so stressed and anxious about my sleep that I am sure I made it worse because I kept thinking something is really wrong with me. This is out of nowhere. I had always been a really good sleeper, even through like kids that were terrible sleepers, I could deal with them and get back to bed. And I was awake for really long periods of time with with also um, like a revving energy, like, you know, I, and we can get into sort of the research that we've done uh, later. But um, again, other women have described it better than I could um, kind of waking with with anxiety or kind of panic or um, there is some kind of the word, the scientific word is arousal, which is, you know, <laughs> there's different, it wasn't that kind of arousal, but just, I, I just felt revved up. Um, and so a lot of times I would get up and do stuff because just lying there was, wasn't, didn't working. So that was the first thing. And then I'd say, and I don't know if these two things were related or not, but like six months or so later, I started just feeling again, I would describe it as a fragility or feeling less able to cope with things like that had never been my thing. I took on a lot. And, uh, and I just, I, I was worrying about stuff I hadn't worried about. So I, I call it sort of like a fragility or, uh, less able to cope in our research. 
and I know it gets put in the big anxiety bucket, but um, I, I think that it is different. I think the perimenopausal experience is actually different and more subtle. And that's also something that I hope to tease out in further research. And what were your healthcare providers' reactions to this? So uh, I, I went to my primary care doctor and uh, and then I happened to have an OBGYN appointment and they were exactly the same when I described this and said, could this be hormonal? The first question they asked me was, are you getting a regular period? I said I was. And then they said, well, then this is not, that's not what this is. And they offered me what they had. Well, my my primary care doctor offered me what she had in her toolkit. I do think providers are doing their best by women and just the research isn't there. They don't know either. And so I'm really, really careful not to throw our healthcare providers, you know, under the bus here because I now realize how little is known about this phase of life. And I should say, like, you know, we should I'm talking about perimenopause. Um you know, and, and specifically, I am trying to shine much more attention on the late reproductive stage, which we'll, yeah, get, to we'll get to that. that. Yeah, which is the very earliest part. So I believe that perimenopause actually begins before um, regular, you know, you start experiencing ir- noticeably irregular cycles. Now, what I will say is, I had stopped tracking my cycles and my periods at that point, because um, I wasn't trying to get pregnant. And um, had I been tracking, and I now have a lot of this data up on the website, I would have seen a subtle change in my cycle length and flow and amount of flow. And that is something, again, we can, we'll get to it, I'm jumping ahead, but that women can do to know themselves that changes afoot. So I didn't give them that information. I just merely said, yes, I'm still getting a regular period. And I was, I was getting a monthly period, but things were changing for me. I just, I didn't know it. I didn't have the data to to confirm that for myself. And then did you eventually find care? Uh, I found, I found it and found women living better. Honestly, this has made, I, I think two things. One, um, I think hearing from so many other women and doing the research, the normalization of it was just huge for me. Um, I think I started focusing more on, you know, the things that are so annoying, but self-care, like sleeping, better sleep. And I watched and I started drinking less and I started, and I think those things have really helped. I mean, right. We're all living dynamic experiences, you know, and of one. Um, and so I can't put to my finger on exactly what worked and changed, but, knowledge, uh, a whole bunch of kind of lifestyle slash behavioral self-care, whatever you want to call it. Um, And I also have this hunch, this is not, I have not been able to research this on my very um, meager research budget, but um, I think there is an initial um, perturbation of the system when, when our hormones start not to, when they start to fluctuate that it's like a uh, like kind of a jolt to the system because everything seemed, and I've talked to others too, just seemed much more difficult or just much more um, amplified early on there. And this was my early forties. Um, and then again, whether it's just naturally settles down as our bodies work to get back to homeostasis, if you support your body or these other things I was started doing or my the knowledge I got kind of less anxious about my <laughs> anxious and sleep things. I don't know, I can't say, but um, I actually have not, nothing like a healthcare provider gave me um, made a change. It's all been sort of self, self-hacking. I don't know what the word is, <laughs> just, just, things I've, just things I've done and learned. And it just also might be time. Maybe I've just been better able to better focus on supporting my body through this transition. 
Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. So let's dig into the research that that you did do that, you know, you you did the study on the symptoms experienced during that late reproductive stage and the menopause transition. And I just I do think that this is really, really important because I hear, you know, there's a woman I work with who I think she's definitely like clinically could be defined as perimenopausal, but maybe late reproductive stage. And that's where the, you know, the like like you when you go to the doctor and the doctor's like oh do you still have your period and you say yes unless there's some dramatic change but you may not even notice you know right. they, they're not they're not going to put you in that menopause transition yet so talk about um what you what you found like lay the lay the groundwork between like what is late reproductive um stage and what's the menopause transition and what were you looking for and what did you find yep 
Okay, so let's let's start with those definitions. So the late reproductive stage is um, when um, you're getting a monthly period, but you notice subtle changes either to your cycle length, so that's the amount of time between day one of one bleed or flow and day one of the other of the next, right? That's how many? That's 28 days, 35 days, right? Um, so subtle subtle changes there subtle changes to the um, amount of flow, so heavier or lighter flow, and the days and or the days of flow. So changes to any of those things can put you in the late reproductive, late reproductive stage. You don't officially enter the menopause transition until you have the, the technical definition is persistent seven day changes between consecutive cycles. So that would be a cycle of 35 followed by one of 28. And if you really drill down, it's you need to have two of those in 10 months to officially enter the menopause transition. So then you're in the early menopause transition. And then to get in the late menopause transition, that's 60 days without a period. Wow. That makes this. Are you are you with me? Is your, I'm yeah. with you, but I'm with you. But like what I'm thinking, though, and we can talk about this because, you know, you use the straw uh, criteria, which is stages of reproductive aging workshop. And right. it's, a, it's a list of criteria often used in research. One of the issues I have always had with straw, and I believe your study finds, is that it weighs like the hormone variation so heavily and it doesn't, and the cycle variations, but it doesn't correspond with women's lived experiences. Absolutely. You know, the, they say that symptoms, quote, symptoms, most notably vasomotor symptoms are likely to occur late menopause transition. True. And hot flashes may be the hallmark, but they're far from the only one or even the most disruptive system. So yeah, symptoms. so 100%. I mean, that is truthfully where this project started, because I was interviewing one of my research collaborators at her house just to put something up on on not to put a series of videos up on the Women Living Better site about various symptoms. And I brought straw with me. And I said, Dr. Richardson, why is there nothing except vasomotor symptoms in the clinical description here? Don't we know more than that? And she said, that's a good question. And then she contacted our other research collaborator. And then that's really how I moved from the education part to the research part. So exactly to your point. Um, so that was that def those definitions I gave were very, very technical. But everybody, women, clinicians alike, just simplify it to, you know, regular and irregular periods. But if we're going to hone in on the on the late reproductive stage, I think there's some real power for women in, you know, tracking to see if there are changes in cycle length, flow or amount of flow, um, because that sort of is a signal that, you know, th things are things are changing. And so so maybe these things I'm experiencing, like are really related to something, even if healthcare provider um, can't can't do that for you. So um what what we found, um, I should say we uh, we did an English version and a Spanish version. Um, we had about 200, 2000, sorry, 2,400 people start the um, uh, English version. And then in various analyses, we created sort of people that were for for inclusion that were eligible that had no kind of hormonal changes to like they weren't on a birth control pill. They weren't taking estrogen, progesterone. So we wanted to see kind of the natural course of um you know, what, what folks in the late reproductive stage versus the menopause transition were experiencing. And we asked about 61 symptoms and we asked about a whole bunch of other things. Um, our findings were 
definitely for some people in the late reproductive stage, there are symptoms. Um, and then interestingly, the symptom experience was more similar than different to those in the late reproductive stage. Now, I will say, you know, our, our population was not necessarily representative of the whole population, right? These people who took our survey and spent 16 or 18 minutes were motivated to, and, you know, they were probably the, but, but there are some people for whom in the late reproductive stage, there's definitely symptomatology and we established that. And then that it wasn't that different from those in the, in the um, menopause transition. So that was, that was one thing that symptoms exist in the late reproductive stage, that they're not that different from um, what people experience in the menopause transition. We established that there are way more symptoms than hot flashes and vaginal dryness, um, the brain fog symptoms and the mood symptoms. Um, we asked about the frequency of experiencing. We asked about the bother. Um, and so we had we had a lot, a lot of data. And then the other really important thing was we asked the question, at what age did you assume symptoms associated with menopause would begin? And 59% of people said, um, 50, 59% of people said age 50 or later, right? And that's really huge, right? If we're, it's the late reproductive stages, you know, and we, um, I think the average age and this, I'd have to pull the paper up. I should say that all of this data, um, I have spent a lot of time putting the whole paper and all of this data up on the Women Living Better site, because I really did this. This was, we've, we've, published other papers, but I almost started this whole project just to be able to share this data with women so that they could go and see these things and say, wow, there are other people experiencing them. Again, just, just to normalize this. And um, what I hadn't thought of was that these papers would be behind a paywall. And mm. so I have to do two GoFundMe campaigns. And so this one now is totally free. Anybody can see it. They can download it. It's all on the site. I've tried to make it kind of user-friendly. So I encourage people who think that they're in the late reproductive stage and maybe experiencing things to just go see what, you know, um, I think in, in that analysis, there were 1,500 uh, total, I think 945 people in the late reproductive stage and five 80 or so in the um, menopause transition. So it's out there to, to check out. Um, and so, yeah, the symptom experience is, is broader than we think, and we expect it later and it happens sooner. Um, I'd say those are our, our very high level um, takeaways from that piece of research. Do you recall what the most common crossover symptoms were into the late reproductive stage? Um what do you mean? So in, like I, that, that overlapped with the menopause transition. Oh yeah. So um, forgetfulness was, I think the uh, top reported symptom of both. Um, I think interestingly in the late reproductive stage, hot flashes didn't make the top 10. It does. Once you get to the late reproductive stage, you mean uh, late met? I'm sorry, menopause transition. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And the only one that declined was breast tenderness, which is very consistent with other research. So that again is something that I think um, for a lot of people, um, breast tenderness is common like early, like in our twenties and then it kind of goes away. And then when the hormones start to fluctuate again, it comes back premenstrually for people. So that's just another, you know, another interesting one. Um, the, the sleep, sleep and mood um, uh, and, 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 the brain fog symptoms of forgetfulness, more difficulty concentrating, um, I think were pretty close to the top. I, I pulled these up so that I could, uh, let's see, here I have it, let's see. I'm more forgetful um, names and where I put things. I'm irritable, irritable was up there. Uh, Short-tempered, grumpy, impatient. I should say we also used women 
part of one of the features on Women Living Better is there's all these ways to kind of share experience into the site. And so I really used women's words to um, craft a lot of these questions. Um, I've sore breasts is up there. I have a harder time concentrating. I'm less interested in sexual activities, new fatigue. I have feelings of anxiety, more nervous, drier skin, awake at night and awake for an hour or more. I feel easily overwhelmed, less able to cope. So those were some of the the top. So I think this dovetails really nicely into like another study you did earlier this year on seeking healthcare for perimenopausal women. You know, like what, what happens is, you know, there may be women who go to your site, late reproductive, they see, wow, I have these symptoms that are, they look just like perimenopause, or maybe they're starting to enter into perimenopause and they don't know it because they haven't clocked their, all their cycles. But what did you find on the study of women seeking care in perimenopause? So I'm just going to set up how we found that. That paper, I think it's interesting for women to read, but it's almost more targeted at helping health healthcare providers um, uh, better support their patients seeking healthcare. So a little bit different audience there. But as part of the survey, we asked of all the symptoms you've endorsed, what's your most bothersome? And then we said, did you seek healthcare for that most bothersome symptom? And if so, how did it go? And it was an open text box. And so this piece of analysis is something called qualitative analysis or content analysis, where we actually coded like 983 responses. Um, and you sort of, you code them and each of the three of us kind of took a different chunk and we coded them and then proposed um, uh, kind of themes and then you kind of roll the themes up. And so basically what we found where there were um, like five themes associated with, we call them satisfied or satisfaction in visits. That's when an experience is validated, the, um, the woman, the patient feels heard and supported, the provider has normalized or acknowledged that their symptoms are linked to perimenopause. Um, another one of the themes was matching explanatory models. So, you know, you come in and you say, here's what I think is going on for me. And if it matches what your healthcare provider, uh, you know, that's a, a good, that's always, a, that's a positive outcome. Um, supported by a team. Uh, that was, that was, that was a satisfying, um, experience, shared decision-making and feeling like the symptom was addressed. And then not surprisingly, the, you know, for many of those, the converse, the four, four themes associated with dissatisfaction were invalidating experiences. So being dismissed for being too young, you're still getting regular period, not, not acknowledging that this is related to perimenopause or being told like, it's just how it is. And this paper too, we did a GoFundMe. And so this is totally public and um, available. And we did use, uh, there's a table in there where we actually put all, not all, but we illustrated each of these themes with specific quotes. And so that's the quote data in that, mm -hmm. in that study. Um, other themes associated with dissatisfaction, a mismatch in the expectations between the patient and the provider, um, like the patient seeks root cause or the logic of the therapy therapy being offered and the providers just sort of saying, here, take this, it works. And, you know, a big one that came up there a lot was women who had hot flashes being offered uh, an antidepressant and saying like, I don't, I'm not depressed. Why are you giving, you know, and they leave and say, oh, they're just, they think I'm depressed, right? And they may actually not think they're depressed. There is some data to suggest that SSRIs are uh, a pretty close to, you know, hormone therapy. Um, the Miss Flash studies showed that. And I think, again, that's just not widely known and our providers don't have a lot of time to explain it, but it's really, really important to explain to a perimenopausal woman. Um, uh, 
barriers to treatment, you know, sometimes a provider would say you need to go have this, this, you know, meet with this other person and the um, patient feels like they're being given like not the runaround, but no, I just can't you just help me. Or just generally a lot of patients just said it didn't help, whatever they offered didn't help, or they didn't want to help, or they shrugged or, you know, dismissal, those types of things. So that was um, that, that, that was that piece of research. Um, you know, I think, I think the kind of takeaways there for, um, for women are, you know, going in with like a very specific thing. Um, I think our providers can help us best, but it's very difficult because perimenopause and the, all of these new symptoms don't really lend to, you're just more like, what is going on with me? And again, I think sometimes there are so many providers that just, they can't help. They don't, they don't know enough to be able to support us through this transition. And that's, I think, just the way, the way things are right now. Um, it's hard to find for many people. It's hard to find um, a provider that's knowledgeable in this space. So where do we go from here? How do we pull this all together to make this experience better for women? Yeah. Um, not only so women understand what they may be experiencing, but like get help, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I spend a lot of time, a lot of time thinking about that. And, you know, as, as we're seeing, there are telehealth providers coming into the space, trying to offer, fill that care gap when, when women actually need care. Um, you know, the, the piece that I'm trying to do is to provide the education to normalize and to just help us understand what, what do we know about this, you know, what's known about this phase of life and what is the, the realm of things that can occur and why are those occurring and what are the things that you can do outside of healthcare. So that's the part that, that I'm focusing on. And I, I think at least we're having some attention. Um, you know, there, there's more attention lately. And I think most of it is good. I mean, I think as, you know, it, there are a lot of people jumping in. And I think, you know, on behalf of perimenopausal women, I'm very protective. And I think they're very vulnerable. And I think there's some people taking real advantage of that. And so I think, you know, the information you get that doesn't have any product or program tied to it, better. I um, so, um, I, you know, I, I'm hopeful that some of these telehealth, I, I think the limiting factor is the providers that are trained, but look, the menopause society is working to train up more people. I mean, by looking at the size of the people, the number of people at that meeting, they said it was their biggest meeting yet. I'm hopeful about that. Um, but I, I don't, I don't have, all, I don't have all the answers. I think yeah. there's still, there's still, there's still like, you know, there's still going to be a gap here, but I'm hopeful that, that better information uh, and more awareness will uh, will help. And I think, I, you know, I, I think women have to sort of trust that if, if you know something is different for you, believe that. Um, if, you know, if you're on some kind of birth control, or you don't have a cycle anymore, it's difficult to track. And I realize that. But if you can, I think seeing that um, the changing cycle lengths and things is very empowering. Um, and I'd say, you know, as much as you can share it with other people, I think, you know, we are uniquely predisposed to think like, oh, maybe I feel like this, particularly with the mood things. And I hope to, you know, spend some more time on research in that area, because I think it's really easy to say, oh, it must be me. It must be my relationship. It must be the choice I'm making to continue working or the choice I've made not to continue working, or I'm not doing, I'm not giving, you know, just kind of the the negative self-talk that makes you think it must be something that you've done when, Yes, our lives, there's a, you know, there's definitely things in our lives that add stress, but I think there is also some biology, physiology that is contributing too. And I'd just like to give proper credence to that, um, 
so so that we're aware of it. I think that's um, that's helpful. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it's important just to circle back that we still hear we still hear that you're too young, you're too young, you're too young. And it's little wonder why women also think they're too young, right? You know, they think like, oh, this doesn't happen until 50. And the message is getting out there that this is a long process. It's not a light switch. And it can take literally years and years, you know, to occur. And you can start feeling the effects of this much earlier than anybody has been talking about, you know, which is really what, in my mind, this this research you've done elucidates. Yeah. I mean, the the thing that I'm trying to figure out is, and I don't know how quite to make it happen, though, but I'd love to build in. Again, I, I debate whether or not to try to build something into healthcare, or can you do it on the side? But I feel like if there was an, a, a way for every woman at 38, somewhere before 40, honestly, to get this information, to get this anticipatory guidance about perimenopause, I, I think it would be a game changer because it's also when all of these sort of, you know, chronic diseases and things happen. And so if we if we made changes and were aware that this new phase <laughs> was starting, um, I, I think there would be so many upside benefits. Um, and it's hard to know how to make that happen. I mean, to ask. And I think this really should live with primary care, to be honest. Um, but most of us don't. There's no really no need to see primary care. At that, we a lot of us don't have kind of annual visits. Then, um, I mean, I think it's it's you know, puberty the the puberty talk and the pregnancy talk. I mean, I guess that sort of happens inside healthcare, but happen outside of healthcare. I mean, this is a normal a normal life transition, and so um, again, just the more we can all do to talk about it and normalize it and share our experiences with our our family and friends, um, I think this is one of the things we're missing by by family units getting more dispersed geographically. People aren't sort of, it's not stuff you share. We're taught that this isn't uh, public discussion. And I think it just has to be. Yeah, I agree. And it, and it, you know, your sites like yours, which, which is, which I really, I wanted to say, I really do think, you know, you, you were talking like it might be a little too science heavy in some people's eyes, but I think the information is very clear and concise. I think it's, uh, yeah, I I do think it's very accessible and, you know, and and I'm curious your take on this. You know, a lot of women will maybe start experiencing some of this and they, they want to get their hormones tested, you know, which we heard again and again, again, right at the meeting that it's just not doesn't say that much in the story, you know, because of how variable it is from within yourself and from woman to woman. And it really is very valuable to know your cycle and your symptoms, you know, your before beyond getting your hormones tested yeah i mean that question comes up so much and i totally get it i mean i wanted to get my you you when you feel sort of out of control and you're faced with some new chaos you want to say like where am i what is it and i will tell you i have checked hormone levels at various times like through a you know a blood thing i did and really i haven't learned anything from any of it because you know and and i'm actually now doing something um, where I'm looking like over a long, long period of time, I'm using a fertility app actually. That's uh, interesting. And I, you know, the new product that was just released, it would tell me I was in a phase, the, the one of the FSH, the, I don't want to, you know, call anyone mm-hmm. out here, but it would not work for me because my FSH is all over the place. Right. And I'm doing, you know, first morning urine, um, 
again, I'm not trying to get pregnant. I think it would be near impossible at this point. And I don't even really know how, what the quality of this, this device is. But um, I shared it with a couple of my advisors at the meeting. And, um, you know, they said, these look really reasonable. It is all of my hormones are all over the place. And for me, that's like, that's why I feel like this. It's just so validating, right? But to your point about like, certainly not a one point in time measurement. Um, and, you know, if I weren't, you know, these these strips that I'm using that I'm paying for, I'm, I maybe I should one day I should do it like four times during the day, because I, I suspect it will be just it's I get and, and that was one of the things early in this project that my fantastic scientific advisors just kept saying, Nina, these these hormones are pulsatile. It's not going to tell you anything. And I really wanted answers. I really wanted answers. And I honestly think some providers are willing to just do the testing because and I and I feel mixed about it because um you know depending it's whether I don't really understand how all the billing works but it's it's not going to get useful information that's I think the true bottom line and yet I completely understand the desire for what the you know is going on here I I need some answers so the ranges are so big even in serum that um we really each need to be our own baseline. And I think the true holy grail will be, you know, I think the younger generations are really good. They're tracking uh, my daughter, like her periods from starting when she first got it. That's amazing data. And maybe one day, and there are some people working on it, we will be able to track daily so that I, Nina will know what's my kind of cycle look like in my, I will never know what my cycle in my mid reproductive years look like too late. But if you could, you might be able to say, oh, Look how different it is now. I'm in peri. I like my body has started to make this transition. That would be fantastic. And I suspect it's not that I don't know how far away that is. So that type of measurement over long hauls may be interesting and useful. But in general, it's like you our goal is to get rid of symptoms. And so treating to the symptoms with the toolbox is really, really the key. Um, it's a, that's a tough one, right? That is. I feel like I answer that question all the time. I just had a call with you know, a friend of a friend. I didn't know this. And she, you know, she said, can you just help me find a provider that will check my levels and give, and I was like, no, that I can, <laughs> let's, let's unravel this a little before we go further. So, um, but I understand it for sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So I, I feel like this has been um, really illuminating and I really, I'm excited to, to share the, this with the audience, because I think there's a lot of people who it, it, they're going to be like, yes, it's about time somebody started talking about the, you know, how early this can start and what that means. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that um, that you would like to leave our audience with? You know, I would just go back to the um, kind of the believe yourself. Uh, you know, if you are if you're noticing changes, trust that in in, in yourself and document what you can. Um, you know, and, and just sort of the separation of this from a medicalized, uh, uh, you know, a, a medical, taking it out of the medical world or needing a healthcare provider to validate, you know, that's what it is. By all means, if there is a symptom or something that is getting in the way of your, uh, you know, interfering in your daily life and relationships, seek healthcare for sure. But I'm hopeful that, um, you know, either through the Women Living Better site or what uh, the Menopause Society is putting out, there are good sources of information out there. And I'm really hopeful that the kind of uh, normalization of it will will help a lot, a lot of people. 
Excellent. Do you have anything in the works right now that we should know about? Um, what am I working on right now? I'm I'm trying to get a um a, a maybe another study um going around delving in more on the mood stuff. Um, because I think we still could drill down more on the experiences. I think there are some I just again, this has not been researched yet, but like my gut tells me more women develop phobias and fears. And there there's something, you know, to me it's there's a corollary in the um our stress tolerance or arousal response, again, arousal in the mood function, similar to what happens to our thermal neutral zone with temperature. I think there's something that the fluctuating hormones uh act upon. It's also in the brain, uh, that makes us as I said, like less tolerant to stressors. And um, so I would love to, again, I do the kind of necessarily quick and dirty, but the research that then boils it up. And so our friends that have NIH grants can then take something and go further. Um, so that is one thing that I, I hope to get started. And and really right now, just these more recent papers, we're just trying to get it out there and get it up on the site. And I'm, I'm look, I'm, let's see, I've done, I think brain fog is live, but I'm also redoing the symptom pages, just making sure they're all up to, to kind of the latest research. Um, and again, changing them so that you can kind of get the high level at the top of the page. And then for those that want a little more detail and get to the studies, you get it as the page goes down. So I am doing that to reorganization. So it sounds like some of that is working on the site. I've been working on it slowly for a while. Um, so those are the things that are kind of on my plate right now. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing. I will put links to this in my show notes so the audience can easily find it. And I look forward to what you find in the future. Well, great. I'm glad we're connected and look forward to staying in touch. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week when I sit down with Dr. Jody Duchet for an in-depth conversation about all the weight loss drugs we've been hearing about and are now being marketed towards menopausal women. She's one of the original researchers on these drugs and an Ironman athlete to boot. So this is a good one. Come on back for that. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty.